in Luke chapter 13 today, but before we get there, I got a couple of announcements. Uh, Randy is saying that uh, at the missions uh, arch out in the, uh, in the lobby there, um, uh, some of the children over in Mexico and some of the children that you sponsored made some things and they're trying to raise money for the orphanage. He asked if you'd stop by there. And um, we're going we're gonna to take up our offering this morning. I want to, um, I'd like to read from you or to you from 2 Corinthians. And Paul is doing a, uh, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians here, <clears throat> pardon me, he's, uh, he's doing a fundraiser for the church in um, Jerusalem. Remember that uh, at when, when the, the church was first birthed in Jerusalem, there were about 3,000 people that were saved. But immediately the church went into persecution. Some of the people like Barnabas and others were selling their land and bringing it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And uh, just you, you got to get this mindset that if you were a believer in that, uh, you know, at that time, this is about, uh, I don't know, uh, two, I mean, this is just months after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And, um, and if you were a Christian, you were on the out list. Uh, it would be hard for you to get a job. If you were, you were seen, you would be, you know, treated as someone that had betrayed Judaism. Um, so you would be on the out. So, uh, I mean, just surviving was, was difficult. And so Paul's out, you know, raising money for the, the, the church in uh, Jerusalem. And he's in Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians. And he says here, he talks about this fundraiser. But he goes on and says, remember this, that whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whosoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your own hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. There's a number of scriptures that talk about giving to the poor. I, I, would, I want to just say that we're working on our church budget. Our fiscal year in this church runs from uh, June 30th to June 30th. And uh, for the last couple of years, we've kind of missed our mark. I will say that uh, while we've missed our mark on uh, you know, preparing the budget, we've been uh, very close to meeting our budget almost every year. Uh, and I just want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving. That's a, just a, you know, applause to yourself for that and to, and to God for moving on your heart. <clears throat> but uh, um, so we're, we're still working on it. Uh, we'll have it uh, tweaked. Mike uh, uh, Gallegos and uh, a few of the other elders are working together to get that uh, done. So we should have it in the next, uh, next month or so. But... Um, you know, the scripture over and over is just replete with, you know, with, with messages about how that, you know, if you lend to the Lord, or if you lend to the poor, if you give to the poor, it's the same as lending to God. And God is saying that he will repay, that he will repay you. And we never with, come to God with the mindset that we're going to give so that we can get. Uh, we give because of all the things, that, the many blessings that we have. David said, and uh, this is recorded in 1 Chronicles uh, the, at the end of the chapter, but he says that he, he, he's talking about all of this wealth. You know, he wanted to build the temple for God. Uh, but God said that you're a man of blood, you're a man of war, and your son Solomon is going to build this temple for me. So while David wasn't able to build the temple, he put the plans together for the temple. He, I mean, you talk about money and savings. I mean, this guy, I mean, he was on it. He gathered gold and he gathered silver and brass and bronze and, you know, cedars of Lebanon. He had it all there. The package was ready. And even though he couldn't put it together, he got it together for his son Solomon, the ne thinking about the next generation. And, you know, I know that many times we come to church with a mindset that, you know, with the problems that we have, the problems that we face on a day-by-day -day basis, and we'll talk about that later on in the service, but sometimes we can just start thinking about us. We think about me and my needs and what I'm going through. And we can kind of put God on the back burner. But David was thinking about the next generation. I want this church to be thinking about the next generation. I mean, one day our light will, will burn out and we'll be gone. But it's the work that we do now that will lay the foundation for the next generation. And so um, and I think about in our budget... 
uh, I was listening to, um, you know, some pastors talk about their missions giving, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of churches don't really give to missions. Um, part of every penny that, that this church receives, and I think our budget last year was about $400,000 is what we budgeted. And, you know, I mean, we, we operate on a shoestring. I mean, we, you know, you guys that know me know that I don't take a salary. I do this because it's my passion. It's what I love doing. Uh, I quit a job where I was making about three hundred dollars to $400,000 a year to take a job that pays me nothing, okay? And because I love this. I love you. I want to see God move in your hearts. I want to see God move in your lives. Now, that doesn't mean my income has stopped coming in because God just keeps blessing me in other ways. And I'm grateful to, that, to God for that. But I do want to say that, you know, many churches don't have either, they don't have a missions budget, or if they do, it's very slim. And we are able to give to uh, Jim and Pat, our missions pastors, um, about 15% of every penny that comes in through tithes and offerings goes back out to missions, whether it's in, to Israel or to the Spanish church or, or to Mexico or um, we were involved in Albania and I'm missing a bunch, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, we have a heart for giving. We want to see other churches planted and see the kingdom of God explode. So I want to just thank you once again for your, for your faithfulness in giving. If uh, these beautiful people will come up and help us take up the offering. All right. Can I get an amen on that beautiful people? <laughs> All right. God, we're grateful. And it's with grateful hearts, Lord. I was, uh, I was thinking about David, and after he amassed all of that wealth and all of that treasure, he just humbly said that all that I have and all that I am comes from the generosity of your hand. And Father, we would say that with David from our hearts today, that all that we have and all that we're able to get back to you comes because of your generous hand to us. We ask your blessing on the offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't want to disturbing these people while they're writing zeros on those checks. <laughs> So we are um, right, men and women, uh, if you want to get your husband uh, to a, a great uh, event that's coming up August the 15th and 16th at our ranch in Angel Fire, uh, we're going to have a men's retreat there. And I was telling the guys, uh, you know, how many of you uh, saw the Kevin Costner uh, version of Robin Hood? And, you know, when he goes into the, the town, the guy is searching everybody and he's like, no bows, no blades, no weapons, you know, and they're stockpiling everything. Well, it's just the opposite at this retreat. Okay. You can bring your bows and your blades and your guns and your, your you know, uh, muzzle loaders and all of that stuff. Uh, we're going to have ATVs there. And uh, just start that back from the beginning. This, is, this was taken from the cabin that we'll be staying in. And this is, uh, go ahead, roll it. This is about three days ago. It's calving time, and all of those mamas have babies with them, and it's cool, and it's totally cool, guys. So mark your calendars, August the 15th and the 16th, that's a Friday and Saturday. Um, you can come up early that day if you want to take the day off on Friday. There'll be a group that's going up, a group of men going up uh, Thursday evening, getting everything set up. Uh, there will be a church van. If you don't want to drive up, you can catch a church van here at about 5 o'clock or 5.30 on Friday evening that will drive, drive you up. The cost is $35. We've got a nice cabin, nice place to stay. Bring a sleeping bag and a pillow and uh, all the things that you want to play with, all the toys you want to play with. It's going to be a blast. I mean, we're going to have a lot of fun. Mike Stone is going to be our speaker there. He'll be speaking uh, uh, Friday night and Saturday. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about kind of wrapping this up by going over and visiting the uh, Vietnam War Memorial uh, in Angel Fire sometimes uh, Saturday afternoon. So mark it, women, mark the calendars for your husbands. Hey, and let me just suggest to you guys, if you're coming, 
bring somebody. Bring a friend with you. Because I tell you, I believe that the Holy Spirit power is going to fall. I believe there's going to be a lot of people that get saved, a lot of men that will get saved at this retreat. So I want to encourage you to come. Bring somebody with you. Be ready to have some fun. Come on, bring it. Welcome to the Light at Mission Viejo. If you are a new believer and are wanting to build a strong foundation in your walk with God, then you won't want to miss our class entitled, I'm Saved, Now What? This class will teach you how you can improve your walk with Christ. Please join us on Sunday mornings from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. This class will help you build that strong foundation and will help you to understand what your salvation means and how you can grow in Christ. Classes are led by Donald Montoya, so please see him for details. Last year, we sponsored over 135 children to go to school in impoverished Palomas, Mexico. We are seeking to make that same difference in the community by helping children who otherwise would not be able to attend school. If you would like to help by sponsoring a child or by making a donation to be pooled with others for sponsorship, please see Pat Noble at the ministry window after church. Sponsorships are $150 for elementary, $250 for middle school, and $500 for high school students. We will be having a parking lot sale on August 2nd to raise funds to cover costs of scholarships and the orphanage. Anyone that wants to donate things for the sale should see Pat Noble or Randy Murray. Men, be sure to join the Men's Morning Prayer and Bible Study, which meets every Wednesday mornings here at The Light from 6 to 7 a.m. Take this time to recharge and reset your week with prayer and encouragement from others. Join us Sunday, July 27th, as we welcome internationally known and acclaimed guitarist Benny Prasad. Benny has performed for the Olympic Games before many heads of states and in front of thousands of people. He travels the world ministering through his music and plays on his guitar, which he designed known as the Bentar. The Bentar is the world's first guitar with bongos and a harp designed within it. Benny will be performing one song during the morning service and will then hold a concert that same evening at 7 p.m. This event is free and a love offering will be taken up. Please invite your friends as you won't want to miss this amazing performer. We are in need of teachers and helpers for the nursery, preschool, and grade school classes. It is a one Sunday a month commitment and parents are highly encouraged to participate. We begin our service with a great time of worship and prayer in the cafeteria, followed by a Bible study, snacks, and lots of fun. Please contact Danae Reyes directly or contact the church office. For further ongoing events, please see your bulletin or stop by our website. We have been in uh, Luke chapter 13. Uh, well, actually, we haven't. We're starting Luke chapter 13 today. But um, let me just give you a quick background, if I can, of where we've been in Luke. 24 chapters in the book of Luke. We, um, in Luke chapter 10 or 11, you will read where Jesus, now in his three and a half years of ministry, it says that he turned his face toward Jerusalem. So, halfway through, a little less than halfway through the book of, of Luke, and Jesus is already, the, I mean, the last uh, uh, 12 chapters are dedicated to Jesus moving toward Jerusalem, knowing that every step that he takes, takes him closer to the cross at Calvary. And so, um, I, I want to just, I'm, I'm going to move through some of this, this first part, uh, fairly quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, before I do, I just want to pray that, uh, Father, we just pray that you would give us um, eyes that see and uh, ears that hear and perceive uh, the Word of God this morning, Lord, and that we would not just be hearers of the Word, but we would take the Word of God and apply it to our life, and we'd not just read about stories that happened some 2,000 years ago, Lord, that uh, these would, this would be a practical message for today. How, do we, how does this message that, that, and the stories that Jesus told 2,000 years ago apply to our lives today? Lord, uh, give us a teachable, learning spirit today. We ask this in Jesus' name. All right, so he told this parable. He said a man had a fig tree. This is the beginning of Luke chapter 13. And he planted it in his vineyard. Now, let me just say this, that if you don't, if you don't know this, uh, there are, are types and shadows in the Old Testament. And in Zechariah chapter 3, at the end of uh, chapter 3, 
the scripture talks about how Israel is related to a fig tree and uh, olive branch and a uh, and a vine, and the fig tree represents Israel as a nation. The olive branch, the olive oil, represents Israel, the the uh, the spiritual Israel, and the vine or the vineyard represents Israel, the religious Israel. And so he says, a man had a fig tree. He's talking about Israel, the nation, and planted it in its, in its vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Uh, it could be very symbolic to Jesus and his ministry, talking to the, the children of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm going to get into this a little, more, a little bit more in just a moment, but uh, there, there was a, there's a turning point, and Luke is quick to point this out. Matthew points this out in Matthew chapter 12. But there is an offer. Jesus shows up, and, and we'll read in just a moment how he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is, ha- is at hand. And, uh, and in this story, Jesus is saying, I've, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, but I haven't found any. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, fig trees uh, produce fruit twice, twice a year. Uh, they do like a summer fruit and a winter fruit. Stuff that's left over from the summer is still good to eat in the, in the, winter, in the winter months. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone uh, for one more year. I'll dig, dig around it and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. All right, and so then I want to just kind of jump over to Matthew's gospel because he's talking about the same thing. Jesus entered the temple. This is, this is I mean, this is Jesus' last week Last time to go up to Jerusalem, this last weekend in Jerusalem, he entered the temple, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those that sold doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind, now listen to this, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. Remember in uh, John chapter 9 when the, when the blind man was actually healed and the religious leaders were trying to get this blind man to give credit to Satan or some kind of demon or something like that, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, they say to, to the blind man, you know, that, you know, that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. And, uh, and the blind man says, you know, one thing I, don't, one thing I do know that uh, I, was, I was, I don't know whether God hears the prayers of sinners or not. He says, one thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. And then he goes on to say that it's never, ever been recorded, Old Testament, New Testament, ever, anywhere, that the eyes of a blind man have been opened. So this is one of the messianic signs of the Messiah. This is one of the, the Messiah. This is one of the signs that when Messiah shows up, that he is going to, from Isaiah 35, remember I said that Isaiah 35 is kind of like our John 3.16. It talked about all the things that Messiah would do when he shows up. And so here is Jesus in the temple. He turns over the money changers. I mean, they're there to make money, um, charging interest on the money and the money exchange. And he says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now listen, the blind and the lame came to him. It wasn't just one blind person that he healed, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I just, I mean, it's beyond me. I don't get it. I mean, how can, I mean, it's like if somebody came in here blind today, and, you know, they got healed by the power of God, and I would stand up here and say, hey, Take that work outside. We're, I'm here to preach the gospel. We're not here to heal people. I mean, it's just, it's just beyond me. How could this happen? I mean, you would think that they would rejoice, but they were indignant. And once again, Jesus is demonstrating through these signs and wonders that he and only he, that all of these signs and wonders and miracles that he's doing are pointing that he is Messiah. And then uh, we read on uh, further on in Matthew, it says early in the morning he was on his way back to the city and he was hungry. Now remember the religious leaders have just criticized Messiah uh, for, for healing the blind, uh, the blind and the lame. And seeing a fig tree, would we say the, rep, uh, the fig, fig tree represented? The nation of Israel. Seeing a fig tree on the, on the road, he went up but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Uh, this is a prophetic word, not just to the fig tree, but this is a prophetic word to the 
nation of Israel. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? All right, we know. This is what we know, okay? Uh, about 35, 30 some odd years after Jesus said that, in 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus invaded Jerusalem. I mean, Israel is under a curse now because they have rejected their Messiah. And 30 years, some 30 years later, when Jesus brought this curse upon the fig tree representing the nation of Israel, uh, Titus, the Roman general, invaded Jerusalem in a, over a two-year campaign or so, finally managed to take control of the city. There were over a million Jews that were killed within that city during that time. The temple was destroyed, and since that time, 70 A.D., the Jews have not had a temple. They have synagogues, but that temple site that, that was cursed uh, that day by Jesus has no longer had a temple since 70 A.D. And then we move on um, again. He says, uh, the stone that the builders rejected... This is the builders were the Pharisees, the religious leaders, has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our sight or, or in our eyes. Therefore, I will tell you, listen to this, because this is, this is really my message today. And I want you to understand, I asked this question to our, to our leadership the other night. What is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? And who is in the kingdom of God? And over and over again, we read this, the kingdom of God. And I, I got to just tell you guys that I've learned something new in the last couple of weeks just in this study myself. That it's just like if you don't know what we're talking about, if you don't know what the kingdom of God is or where it is or what it stands for, the scriptures make no sense to you. And I mean, it's just like over your head every time. And so... Therefore, he says, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, talking to the religious leaders and to the Jews, he says, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He was talking about the Gentile people. Now, I, I, I don't really understand why Jews could not get that. If you read in Acts chapter 22, Paul is giving his testimony about his salvation. And then he says that because the Jews had a hard heart, that God was going to send him to the Gentiles, and the crowd goes ballistic. I mean, they're ready to take his head off. I mean, I'd love to have been there. I mean, it says they're taking their clothes off, they're throwing dust up in the air, they're screaming, they're shouting, away with such a man like this. But if they knew the word of God from, you know, from Genesis, where God tells Abraham, he says that all nations, talking about Gentile nations, will be blessed because of Abraham. And we are blessed today because of Abraham, because Jesus comes through that line. Um, and then in, in the book of Malachi, the last writing in the Old Testament, and I think in the second chapter, he says that from the rising of the sun, he was, he's criticizing again the priests and the religious leaders at that time, and he's saying that, you know, you're offering me uh, scarred and lamed and crippled sacrifices. You're bringing that to me? You're putting that on my altar, God is saying? He said, you think I'm pleased with that? He said, try giving that to your governor. Try giving it to your city councilman. See if they'll appreciate it. Nobody wants that. Uh, he says, take your, your, your offerings, your sacrifices. They're, you know, they're just like, they, they make me sick is what God was saying. He said, but the, he says, the day is coming. That from, we sing a song about this. We used to anyway. In the, it's called an oldie. Um, <laughs> where I come from. Uh, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The Lord's name shall be great among the nations. That's talking about the Gentile nations, that God's name is going to be great among the Gentile nations. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I'm going to give it to a people that will produce its fruit. Who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priest, this, is this group of people that remember the clash here, they've got their way, and Jesus has got his way. He says, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard uh, Jesus' parable, and they knew that he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid because of the crowd, because most of the people held that he was a prophet. Now, notice that most of the people held that he was a prophet. Not Messiah, that he was a prophet. Most of the people held that he was a prophet. So he demonstrates that he has fulfilled all the messianic promises to, to, that were, requ were required of Messiah um, by doing the things that he did, and he was rejected. He's offering the kingdom of God to them. And he also demonstrates that in the second story that I want to read, that he alone has the power over the demonic world. Remember, there, you know, I mean, in this world, 
there, uh, there's, there's good and there's evil. There's God and there's Satan. And Satan has his forces and God has his angels. And I know that many times when we read the word or we think about the way the world, the, the way the world is today, we think, man, God, come on, man. Wipe the sweat off your brow. Let's get it on. You know, let's win. This is a tough fight. I'm praying for God to win. Let me tell you something, guys. You don't have to pray for God to win. God's already won. God has already won. And this is not a fight. As a matter of fact, when uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are apprehended, God is not even lifting a finger. He tells one of his angels, do it. And they do. All right. All right. So check this out. Quickly, I'm going to move through this again because I've got to get to my point. On a Sabbath day, and this is just demonstrating that Jesus once again is Messiah over spirits of darkness. It says, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and a woman who was, uh, had been crippled by a spirit, and I want you to know that that is an evil spirit, a demon, a demonic spirit. She had been crippled for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not straight up, straighten up at all. I mean, I can imagine, you know, she's probably like, you know. And, but notice it says that she was in the synagogue. Jesus was, uh, but we're not talking about a witch. We're not talking about someone that's involved in Wicca. We're not talking about someone that's involved in the occult. We're talking about a daughter of Abraham. This is a believer. This is a believer in Yeshua. I mean, a believer in, in God Almighty, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was a true believer. And uh, it says that when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her. And I can just imagine just this tender moment. This woman is all bent over and crippled. And Jesus just reaches down and, and touches her face. And it says immediately she straightens up and she praised God. Indignant. Listen, here we are again. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days to work, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. Dude, slap his face. I'm not kidding you. I mean, what, what are you thinking? I mean, what could you possibly be thinking? Indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days to work, so come and be healed on those, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, I love this. I love it. Uh, bring it, Jesus. You hypocrite! And Wow. You know, which is like, uh, what I just say or what I just hear? Doesn't uh, each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it to water? Then should not this daughter or this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan, Satan has kept bound for 18 long years. Think about this, 18 long years. Now, I know that some of you guys have been going through some trials. Some of you guys, have, you know, had some issues in your life, some problems in your life, and, you know, it's just like, God, why don't you just show up? Just show up. Show up, God. I mean, why don't we do this yesterday? But it says for 18 long years that she has been bound. Shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day? What is that? Sabbath, you know, means rest. It's just that, you know, that rest, that un unburdening, unloading. It says, and when he said this, his opponents were humiliated but listen to this the crowd the people were delighted at all the wonderful things that he was doing and so I, let me let me go right here i'm, I'm just going to race through this and, and get to the point that i i think is really i mean not that this wasn't important but i need to kind of lay a, a little groundwork for you in the bible in the in, in at least in the translation that i'm using there's a there's 173 references in um in the bible uh, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. 118 of those 173, 118 of those occur in the New Testament. And so, like, for example, Jesus starts out his ministry. John the Baptist actually starts out the ministry like this. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. What's that mean? What is, that, what is he talking about? The kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4, uh, 17, Jesus begins to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew 11, 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly, forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold on it. 
Matthew chapter 12. And here's the turning point right here. He's offering the kingdom. He's saying, through these signs and through these wonders, everything that I'm doing is pointing that I am the, I am the Messiah. But in Matthew chapter 12 is the turning point. And um, Luke chapter uh, 13 is very similar to that. It's Jesus is offering the kingdom of heaven to the people. Everything that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the Messiah has come to pass. He has fulfilled those prophecies, and he's offering them the kingdom. But in Matthew chapter 12, it's a pivotal point in the Bible, and this is what it says. Jesus is being accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the chief of demons, or the head of all the demons. And he goes on to say, he says, and if I cast out by demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But, listen to this, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God has come. And so... Um, and then in Matthew chapter uh, 13, his disciples came to him, and this, this was the turning point. Not only did the uh, religious leaders not accept him as Messiah, but they began to turn the hearts of the people against Jesus as well by, by making this statement. And so there's a turning of the tide here, and Jesus knows at this moment that Israel, the religious leaders, and the majority of the people are not going to, going to accept him as Messiah. And so the rest of the teaching from in Luke chapter 13 on really is directed. He, is, he, he knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going up to Jerusalem. Every step that he takes is a step toward his crucifixion and uh, Every teaching that he gives, every parable that he speaks after that is directed toward the disciples. And he says in Matthew 13, his disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Okay, so when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, I want you to just think about this for a second. Uh, before there was an earth, before there was heavens, remember that all the planets and the stars and the galaxies and everything that we see right now, that God created that for us. He created that for people on this earth. And so, but before there was an earth, before there was a sun and a moon and stars and a Milky Way and all the galaxies, what was there? God. Okay, good. All right. So who was the king of that kingdom? So we have a kingdom that existed, God's kingdom, before any of this creation that we see today. God was in that kingdom. He was the king of that kingdom. And so, and then he creates the heavens and the earth. And, uh, and then as we, as we move forward, we know that this earth is going to come to end. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the kingdom of God there? Oh, you know, we, and we pray this prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What's that talking about? Your kingdom up there, come down here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what we're praying, that God's kingdom will come to this earth? So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, what is he talking about? And we know that at the end of the age, this earth is going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, you've got to think about it in segments, in stages. And so let me explain to you what Jesus is talking about. Now, let me, before I even do that, let me just tell you why the Jews were having a, trouble, having a problem with Jesus. I mean, they were looking and they understood that when Jesus was talking about a kingdom, they knew, they knew a lot about a kingdom. They knew about a kingdom that was going to come. But what did they know about it? They knew that God was going to restore the restoration of the tabernacle of David, that God was going to raise up a righteous one. Uh, let's just read the scripture here from Jeremiah chapter 23. They saw Jesus as, you know, as a healer, as a prophet. Um, the crowds loved him, but not everybody loved him or recognized him as Messiah. They loved him, why? Because he healed the lame, he healed the blind, he healed the sick. They loved him because he fed the 5,000. They loved him because 
you know, in some of their minds, they had a conflict with the, you know, with the Romans and with their, with their own religious leaders. So they were thinking that he was going to be raised up as a political power. But what they were looking for, they were looking for um, you know, someone that would be like David, that would be a military man like David, or, you know, have a throne and a glory like Solomon had, or that, um, you know, uh, would establish what the scripture talks about righteousness and peace and joy. They were looking for someone to bring that in. And when they didn't see Jesus doing that, they began to turn their, their backs toward him. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. It's talking about Jesus, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. That wasn't happening when they were under the Roman oppression. Uh, this is the name which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so they were looking for someone like David and Solomon. They were looking for someone that would usher in righteousness and peace. And they didn't see Jesus doing that. And so having rejected their Messiah. And so um, then Jesus asked... Um, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air perched in it. And again he was asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed in a large uh, amount of flour until it worked through the dough. And Jesus went through the towns and the villages and teachings, uh, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Remember every step of the way? Going to his crucifixion, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? This is pretty significant because this is a Jew asking Jesus if many Jews, he certainly wasn't talking about Gentiles because, I mean, to the Jew, the Gentiles were dogs. He wasn't talking about Jews. But there was something about Jesus' teaching that was starting to cause them to question. Because in the Jew's mind, if you were, number one, if you were born a Jew, if you were a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham, if you kept the law to the best of your ability, you read and kept and obeyed the law, plus all the other rules that the religious leaders asked, uh, asked you to keep, that adding on of the law, no question, you're going to be saved. But there was something in the teaching of Jesus that made them question, really? You know, are there only going to be, Lord, are there only going to be a few people that are going to be saved? And then he makes this, this statement about making every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door before us, but he will answer, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. And you will say, we ate and we drank with you. What's that, what's that reference to? Remember the religious leaders, they invited Jesus to come to his house. And why they invited him? They invited him to, so they could trap him, so they could try to find some fault with him. Um, they were testing him. But they're going to say on that day, we ate with you. Remember, we ate, you, I invited the Pharisees, invited him to the house. And, uh, and then there, there are others who are going to say that, uh, uh, that we, uh, you taught in our streets. That's talking about the crowds. The crowds listened to him, and they followed him, and you know, they were happy to see all the things that he was doing. But he says, away from me, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. Away from me, you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see, now listen to this, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, all of these people that you recognize and you hold up as godly men, you're going to see them in the kingdom of God. But what's he say? Um, he says, but you yourselves will be thrown out. Now, we know that, uh, why was Jacob in the kingdom of God? Because he was the son of Isaac. Why was Isaac in the kingdom of God? Because he was the son of Abraham. Why was Abraham in the kingdom of God? What do we know about Abraham? Genesis chapter 15 says that Abraham believed God. Not because he was born a Jew, but Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And these guys were trying to, the ones that Jesus is saying are going to be locked out, and, and as an additional slap in the face, he, said, he says, uh, uh, you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself will be thrown out. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. You know what that means? He's talking about the nations, the Gentiles. 
He said, he's telling the Jews, the chosen people, he's saying, you're going to see the nations come and they're going to be eating at the table in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are going to be cast out because you rejected God's Messiah. Is this making any sense to you guys? All right, thank you. Two people got it. I'll preach the same message next week. I'm going to do it all over again. All right, so he says that the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a good seed that's in a field. Now listen to this. Because I want you to, you got to get what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who uh, sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Where then did this weed come from? An enemy did this, he replied, and the servant asked, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, uh, we're looking for an explanation. What's this mean? Well, his disciples asked them. No work on my part on this. Uh, his disciples said, what do you mean? Well, I'm tell explain the, par the parable to us. Then the crowd left. He went to the house. His disciples came and said, explain to us the parables of the weeds in the field. And he said, now listen to this. The one who sowed the good seeds is the Son of Man. It's talking about Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now listen to this. We're talking about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? He says, enter into the kingdom of God. The harvest, the harvest of both the good and the bad is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. The weeds will be pulled up and burned in fire, and so will it be at the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom, or out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. All right, so get this. He is saying that the kingdom of God is earth. It's this time right now. It's from the time of Christ until the time that Christ returns. Not the rapture. I'm not talking about the rapture, but I'm talking about at the end of that seven-year tribulation period when this question came up yesterday in our men's study that uh, the Bible says in, in uh, Zechariah chapter 3, uh, it says that a nation will be saved in a moment. And in that moment, how does that happen? How does it, Think about America. How could, I mean, just boom, everybody in America is a believer. How would that happen? How could that possibly happen? Well, at the end of the age, when Jerusalem is surrounded by the nations, they're coming up to destroy it, and we can see that happening right now. We can see, you know, all of these, uh, these precursors to this. You know, the nations are rising up against Jerusalem. I mean, they're under siege. They're under fire right now. They're under attack right now because the enemy still knows they are still God's chosen people. All right, and so, you know, at the end of the age, when, when Jerusalem is surrounded by the nations and they're about to be destroyed, in Zechariah chapter 12 says, they will look and they will see in the heaven one coming. Revelation chapter 19 says, this is one that is coming, is riding on a white horse, and he has on his robe written king of kings, and on his thigh has written king of kings, lord of lords and king of kings. They'll look up, and it says that they will look upon him whom they, the nation of Israel, has pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only begotten son. And at that moment, at that moment, the entire nation of Israel Boom! Man, it's just like, man, how could we have done this? How could we have been so blind? We killed our Messiah 2,000 years ago. Well, a little longer than that. But uh, maybe he comes back tomorrow, and they say that. All right, so what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is this life right now. So when he's talking about um, the kingdom of God, he's talking about from the time of Christ to the time that Jesus comes back. All right, let me just kind of bring this to close here. Um, we know, almost everything we know about the kingdom of God is recorded in the Old Testament. 
Everything that, that we know, almost, almost everything we know except for one thing. The one thing that the Old Testament doesn't tell us about the, king, the kingdom of God, the new kingdom of God, at the end of the age, you know, this new kingdom that God's going to usher in, where Jesus is the king of that kingdom, uh, the one thing that we learn from Revelation chapter uh, 20 is that it lasts for a thousand years. It's the one thing the Old Testament doesn't cover. And so, so when we think about that, when we think about the kingdom that's coming lasts a thousand years. So that kingdom has a beginning and it has an end, a thousand years. But when, when the angel is speaking to Mary in Luke chapter 1, she says that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And you will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. So here's another aspect of the kingdom that never ends. And that kingdom, when that kingdom starts at the end of the age, when the angels come, when Jesus comes and destroys the armies at the end of the age, at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, a new heaven and a new earth will, after the end of that thousand-year reign, a new heaven and an earth will be created. So what does this mean? When Jesus is talking about, he, he tells this, these stories, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And uh, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man planted in his field, and though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it grows to the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Well, we know, botanists know, and you know, uh, people that study that know that, you know, that the uh, mustard seed is not the, the smallest of the, of the seeds. Um, actually, there are seeds that are, are some, some seeds that are, are like dust-like, dust for example, uh, uh, or, uh, orchid seeds are like that. I mean, they, they're just like dust. So what is he talking about? Was he wrong? I mean, was this God creator? I mean, Jesus created all things. We understand that. Was he wrong when he said that the mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds? No. What he was saying, he was talking to, consider the group that he was talking to, he was talking to Palestinian farmers. And he's saying, of all the seeds that you sow in your field, you know, you, you may sow uh, flax or barley or wheat or whatever, corn or, or cotton, whatever you're sowing, that the mustard seed of all the plants that are going to be useful to you are, are the smallest of all the seeds, and yet it grows to the largest. It can grow, the black mustard seed, and you can look this up, uh, I did, Googled it, uh, can grow to be 12 foot tall. And so does that, I mean, what does that mean? You know, I mean, he's saying that, uh, you know, that uh, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Typically, when we talk about the birds of the air, remember in the parable of the sower, it talks about how the birds come and steal the seed. Well, usually we equate that to, you know, birds being bad in the Bible. You know, remember Abraham watching over his offering and his sacrifice and having to drive away the birds that were coming and, and trying to take his uh, sacrifice away. But... Let me give you another example in the scriptures from Daniel. We only have to go to Daniel to find out what, you know, the meaning of this is. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has this incredible dream, and he dreams about a tree, and uh, no one can interpret it but Daniel. And so he calls on Daniel, and Daniel comes in, and he says, My Lord, if the dream applied only to your enemies and its meaning, meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky, visible to the whole earth, was beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing food for all, listen, giving shelter to the beast of the field and having a nesting place uh, in its branches for the bird of the air. You, O oh Lord, are that tree. And so what, what, he, what Jesus is saying is that even though the mustard seed is the smallest of all, the, all of the seeds, that it will be a habitation for life. It will be a providing place for life. Now think about this for a second. I mean, if any ministry ever started out doubtful or dismal, think about the ministry of Christianity. Uh, you know, I mean, we start out with one man, and uh, he is rejected. Uh, he is sent to Jerusalem. He is crucified. He is buried, and then he's raised from the dead. And then he's got 12 guys that have taken his place. One of them betray him. And then that grows from 12 to 120 on the day of Pentecost. And that 120 grows to 3,000. And I think today that about one-third of the world's population, you know, considers themselves or would call themselves Christian. Now, I mean, it had a pretty bleak start, didn't it? 
started out pretty small, one person. And so Jesus is saying, just like the mustard seed, you know, it starts out small, but it grows into something great. And then he says the same thing, the other story about the yeast. He says, Another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed a large amount of flour until it worked through all the dough. Now, um, it it starts out just, I mean, you can have pounds and pounds of flour, but you only need that little pinch of dough. It's just a small beginning. I mean, the yeast is just a small beginning of these things, but it grew and accomplished what, you know, what God wanted it to do. Um, I, I want to just share the story with you um, about uh, Florence uh, Florence Chadwick. I don't know if you guys know who she are, she is or who she was, uh, and I've used this illustration before, but this is really so cool. She was born in San Diego on November the eighth, nineteen eighteen, and she had her first swimming competition at the age of ten. At the age of eleven. She competed her first challenging, competitive, rough water swim, and she placed fourth place all right, at 11 years old. All right, she could have quit there. She could have quit there. She could have said, you know what, swimming's not for me. But listen to this. Her biggest contribution to swimming history occurred on August the 8th, 1950, when she crossed the English Channel in 13 hours and 20 minutes, breaking the then current world uh, record. One year later, Chadwick crossed the English Channel yet again from England to France, this time in 16 hours and 22 minutes, thus making her the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions and setting a record for uh, France and England. Now, this is so cool because we have a tendency, guys, to want to quit. When things get tough and things get rough in our lives, we want to check out. We want to bail out. In 1952, she attempted to swim 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California coastline. As she began, she was flanked by small boats that watched for sharks and prepared her, uh, prepared to help her if she got hurt or grew tired. About 15 hours, um, after about 15 hours, a thick fog set in and Florence began to doubt her ability. She told her mother, who was in one of the boats, that she didn't think she could make it. She swam for another hour before asking to be pulled out, unable to see the coastline due to the fog. And as she sat in the boat, she found out that she had stopped swimming one mile. She had, it was 26 miles. She swam 25 miles and checked out. She stopped short. Two months later, Chadwick tried again. This time, it was different. The same thick fog set in, but she made it because she kept a mental picture, a mental image of the shoreline in her mind when she kept, and she kept swimming. You know, guys, how many of us stop short? How many of us stop short? I know, you know, those of you that know me know my background in real estate and developing, and one of the things that's crucial in New Mexico is water. I mean, you got to have water. You got. I mean, if you don't have water, you don't, you don't have development. I don't care how pretty your land is. I don't care how good it looks. If you don't have water, you have absolutely nothing. We bought 1980. Nina and I purchased some property. We we're going to develop this large tract of land. And, um, of course, after we bought it, all of our good friends came out and said, well, you know why you got such a good deal on that land is because there's no water there. And I'm like, thank you. Where were you yesterday? You know, before I signed. And um, so, uh, and the word was out, you know, like if you go in New Mexico, if you get in this what's called uh, decomposed granite, if you go 400 feet, quit, quit. You know, just there's no point in going any further. So we had a, a guy that had just moved uh, here from Ohio, and uh, he was a well driller, older guy, knew nothing about New Mexico, but, I mean, he was a seasoned well driller. And he told us, uh, I told him, I said, you know, here's the deal, start drilling, and uh, when you get to 400 feet, uh, stop. I said, don't go any further. And so it just happened that day at about noon. Uh, we were uh, having lunch. He was at the same restaurant. And uh, he said, I hit 400 feet, and we don't, have, we don't have water. We have a trickle. I said, stop. And he says, you know, Ron, he said, I got a feeling. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm paying you by the foot. I bet you do have a feeling. <laughs> but uh, I said, look, dude, I said, you can take that well to China. I'm paying you for 400 feet. Uh, feeling or not I'm, not, I'm not paying more than 400 feet. And I saw him later that day. And he said, Ron, he said, I took the well to 425 feet. Now watch this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's about 25 feet from that pulpit. I quit. He didn't. At 425 feet, we found about 35 gallons a minute of water. Don't quit. You know, don't despise. Look at this, this next couple of scriptures, and, and I'm, I'm going to quit. And I'm, and I'm going to quit. I promise you. So in Zechariah chapter 4, 10, he says, Don't despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. This is a reference to the building of the second temple. And there were some that had seen the first temple in all its glory and all of its beauty, and they were weeping and crying. And there were some that had never seen a temple before. And even though it was small, they were excited about it. They were pumped. I mean, there was weeping and there was laughter. There was weeping, there was joy. But, you know, let me just say, guys, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit on your spouse. Don't quit on your job. You know, you may be bummed out because you didn't get the promotion. You may be bummed out because maybe you just feel like you're not where you ought to be in life right now. You know, you just like, you know, you feel like throwing your hands up and, and it's like, God, what's the use? Why should I press on? Why should I go any further? You know, that's exactly what the people were saying in the last chapter of Malachi, the book of Malachi. God, you know, there, what's the benefit of serving you? I mean, we try to serve you and, and, and life is still miserable and my life is still a wreck and I'm, I'm still screwed up and I'm still messed up. You know, what's the point of serving you? What's the point of serving you? What's the point of staying in this relationship? What's the point? Why press in? Well, I want to tell you why we press in, because unlike the religious leaders, unlike the religious leaders of the, of the time of Jesus, they thought they knew the right way. Jesus was presenting a way where he says, you can't put a new cloth on an old garment. You don't tear up a new garment to put that patch on an old garment. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. It won't work. And Jesus said, this system, the system that we're in right now, the system that the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching was not a system that was going to work anymore. It had to pa pass away. I want you to consider this for just a moment. If the God, you know, and we, we, I would ask this question, you know, what, as a Christian, what is our goal? And most of us would say to know God and to make him known. But let me just hit you with this. If the God that you think that you know is not the God that he actually is, then the God that you are making known is not the God that he wants to be known as. Are you getting that? Thank you. Let me say it again. If the God that you think you know is not actually the God that he is, then the God that you are making known is not the God that he wants to be known as. And that's what the religious leaders were doing of that day. They were saying that this is the way. This is the way to have eternal life. What do I need to do to have eternal life? You know, be a son of Abraham. Be born a son of Abraham. Be a descendant of Abraham. Keep the law, all the law, all the, all the, you know, the difficult parts of the law, all the things that the religious leaders added in. Keep all of those things and you can be saved. And Jesus is saying that whosoever believes in me will never perish but have everlasting life. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to believe in him. Put your faith in him.
So how would that be said today? Well, some might have said it this way. No need to get excited. The thief, he kindly spoke. There are many here among us that feel that life is but a joke. But you and I, we've been through that. And this is not our thing. So let us stop talking falsely now. The hour is getting late. And I'm going to tell you that the hour is getting late. You know, let's stop talking falsely now. Life is not a joke. This is not our fate. The way of the world is not our fate. 